You are listening to episode 35 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, in which Batman comes to Hell's Kitchen. Look at this. I swear to God, it's the kind of you'd expect Tiger Woods to tee off with. Look at it. Swear to me! Well, that was not what I had in mind. Uh, not at all. That's a little awkward. I'll tell you what, let's try this. Growing up in Hell's Kitchen, Matt Murdock lost his sight as a boy, but gained superhuman senses. When crime took his father, Matt Murdock fought back, becoming a brilliant litigator and champion of justice by day. At night, armed with his billy club, Daredevil keeps a vigilant watch over New York as its guardian devil, a man without fear. In Gotham City, a young Bruce Wayne saw his parents gunned down in a senseless act of crime. He trained his body and his mind to combat evil and protect his city from those who would cloud her skies with darkness. He wears the image of a winged creature of the night to strike dread into his foes as a caped crusader. A dark night. Welcome to a special episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Bruce Wayne. No, actually, that's not right. You can call me Dave. This is, of course, the Batman Daredevil episode, special edition, jumbo-sized. And I should let you know I'm currently recording under the watchful eye of my 18-inch NECA Michael Keaton Batman figure. So if I sound like I'm a little under duress, well, he's got a piercing gaze, what can I say? Usually, the aim of Dave's Daredevil podcast is to read an issue of Daredevil, talk about the comic, talk about the characters, everything involved with that. This week is no different. Except I'm bringing another hero into focus. 2014 is not only the 50th anniversary of Daredevil, it's the 75th anniversary of Batman. And more importantly to me, the 25th anniversary of the Tim Burton Batman film. So following that logic, it seemed prime time to cover the Batman Daredevil crossover books. And this was originally going to be a one-off special, but I decided it needed to be part of the canon of the show. It needed to be an episode. Why? I don't know. Blame my OCD or CDO. It's in the proper alphabetical order. But I knew the books we're covering this week, at least two of them, would be on the agenda at some point in the show's run. However, the synchronicity of these anniversaries falling in 2014 pretty much pinpointed when that would be. And before I get too far in, I want to thank Charlie Niemeyer for making this episode possible. He knows why. Go check out his show, Superman in the Bronze Age, formerly co-hosted by yours truly. That is at supermaninthebronzeage.com. I want to say two things up front as a form of disclosure. First off, yes, I am jumping on the Batman bandwagon, and there are some that would say Batman's getting a lot more attention than he would deserve, or more attention than other characters would get on their anniversary. However, that's kind of why I'm jumping on the bandwagon. Because there is merit to this character, and I'm going to be talking quite a bit about him. Second disclosure, this is a special episode of the show. The format's going to be a little bit different than any other episode we've had so far, or quite a few after. But more so, a show that talks about Daredevil week to week, I have pretty well covered the bases on Daredevil so far. I'm going to have hundreds of episodes to come that are still going to talk about Daredevil. Since we do have a special guest superhero this week, I'm going to give Batman a little bit of the floor. Again, because I talk about Daredevil week to week. I mean, yes, there are a lot of Batman podcasts, but not any chances where I get to talk about The Dark Knight and my history with him and just about the character in general. 
So I wanted to take that ball and run with it a little bit and put some extras in the episode that wouldn't necessarily be covered any other way, at least by me. Don't get me wrong, Daredevil's going to be talked about. This is his show. He's a big part of this crossover. But there are some things I want to speak to in regards to Batman. Starting with fandom. Fandom is important. And this podcast as a whole, and this episode in particular, is all about fostering and promoting fandom. Having said that, Batman fans are perceived by other fandoms as boisterous, contentious, condescending, and voracious. And I think that depiction carries a little bit of merit with a broad minority of Bat fans. I think it's impossible to apply that sort of total thinking to a total fandom, especially since we're dealing with, while it feels like a lot, it's still a marginal amount of Batman fans. Conversely, I also think there's a bit of unfairness in pointing fingers at the Batman fans. Sure, they have a reputation for letting you know how Batman can beat any given character, which, yes, I've had many run-ins with that same mentality. But the unfairness comes that the Batman fandom is a very passionate fandom. So instead of being accusatory or derogatory, I want to speak to the passion behind the fandom. Because that is the important thing. That is the driving force in any fandom. Because to be a fan is to be passionate, and to be passionate is to want to talk about the merits of the object of fandom. I support this wholeheartedly and completely. I promote this. But I will say this. The golden rule of any fandom is don't cut down another's fandom for the sake of your own. With that in mind, the second rule of fandom is don't let somebody tear down your fandom for the sake of their own. Ultimately, regardless of your opinion of a certain fandom, you are responsible for the toll that somebody else's opinion, keyword there, opinion, takes on your fandom. Fandom is your baby. Feel free to defend it, or you know what? It's fine to just walk away from the conversation if it does become contentious. There's no need to have slugfests at the comic shop. This is a lesson that I should have learned a long time ago, one that I definitely learned through the whole Man of Steel debacle last year. For as much as that was annoying and frustrating, I think I came out of it with a different perspective that's helped me a lot. It's definitely the two rules I'm enacting with this very episode. A lot of that comes down to this. For me, it's been a long time since I could claim to be a Batman fan. I've been reluctant to call myself that. For several reasons, but ultimately because I liked Superman, I liked Daredevil. In any conversation of which, ended up being Batman can beat them given five seconds of prep. Yes, we know that mentality. We've heard that mentality. That's fantastic. But that's not entirely accurate. But because of that, I was worn down. And you know what? It was a lot like Ricky, Bobby, and Crepes. I will let you go, Ricky. But first, I want you to say, I love Crepes. Don't you say it, Ricky. These colors don't run. I'm not going to say it. Good. Hey, look. Frenchie, I thought about it. So why don't you go ahead and break my arm? I do not want to break your arm, Monsieur Bobby, but I am a man of my world. You are now mocking me and making me look ridiculous. Just say, I love crepes. You know, just to put this in there, yeah. I had a whole mess of crepes this morning. They're just like pancakes, maybe even better. Wait, are they the really thin pancakes? Eh. Yes, they are. They are the really thin pancakes. It's just a French word for them. Oh, my God, what are those? What syrups you want on them and stuff? I'm just saying, think about it. They come with cheese sometimes? Yes, of course, it's fromage crepe. Well, why didn't someone yell at it right, right away? Do you know what's in the crepe Suzette? Oh, I love the crepe Suzette. 
with the sugar and yeah, the, the sugar lemon juice. Yeah, the lemon juice, sure. Oh, my I, I wish I could crawl into one of those right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's my way out from the inside. <laughs> oh, it's tasty. Oh, man, you know, either way this goes down, can we go get some after we're done? Absolutely, we're going to do that. Bon, so what if you just said, I love a really thin pancakes? That is a fair compromise, no? That is a fair compromise. That's very fair, actually. Okay. Now, because then everyone know I really meant crepes. That's actually a pretty good compromise right there. Why do you want me to break your arm so badly? You don't understand. You don't understand because you don't understand liberty. You don't understand freedom. So you put a crack in my arm like the crack in the liberty bell. You hear me? <laughs> it's just between you and me, okay? Yeah. I mean, forget all these other guys, but he did give you a pretty decent out. But it's your call. What do you think? Don't say it. Yeah, I'm not going to say it. Nope. Break it, Pepe Le Pew! As you wish. The fact is, you can like Batman and Daredevil for their similarities and their differences. You can like and be a fan of whatever you like. And regardless of personal pride, it's okay to mix and match characters or whole comic universes equally. So I want to say I am a fan of Daredevil, but I'm also a fan of Batman, and I'm excited to talk about both of them this week. Because I feel like this is a matchup that I'm a little bit responsible for, even though I don't have the paperwork to back that claim up. To give some background on that statement, though, I knew Batman. I'd seen him on Super Friends. I'd seen him on the Filmation Adventures of Superman cartoon. I had seen the 1966 movie, but to me, for a long time, Batman was Superman's friend. He was his teammate. He was number two to Superman's number one. All of that changed in 1989, 25 years ago, which... I'm a little sad that I have a frame of reference for anything that happened 25 years ago. But when the Batman movie was released, it opened this floodgate of fandom for me. And it couldn't have happened in a better sequence of events. I knew about the Batman movie coming. I knew about Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Didn't think much of it. One of those, yeah, I'll go see it. But I'm also going to go see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Ghostbusters 2. However, for pretty much the month of May, I was secluded at a lake for a month. Fairly well cut off from civilization. The TV didn't get much reception. I was cut off. I had no idea what was happening in the outside world until I returned to see Batmania. To this day, I still haven't seen anything like this. Nothing on the level of phenomenon that this Batman movie was because you went anywhere and Batman was everywhere. And I dropped right into it. I was caught up. Jumping into the deep end of the pool and I started collecting anything Batman. I got the souvenir magazine from Topps, got the novelization, I got a huge making of book, got the Dark Knight Returns, which, well, I may have been a little too young for that, wasn't quite ready, but it definitely steeled me for some more mature content. Picked up the further adventures of Batman, Untold Legend of Batman, it was the Summer of the Bat. So from the 1st of June till the 23rd, I was immersed in no uncertain terms. To the point that when I finally went to see the movie, I could quote parts of it wholeheartedly. And I can still quote that movie, as I learned last year when I saw a screening of it at a local theater. This is the first time I could look at something and say, yes, this is my jam. Anton First Gotham was where I wanted to live. Vicky Vale was the kind of girl I wanted to have when I grew up. In terms of action figures, the Toy Biz figures were okay. But for me... I didn't really get going on that front until Kenner got the license and started producing the Dark Knight collection. Yes, this is going towards the original point of the team-up. But while I'm here, let me talk about the Dark Knight collection. Kenner basically took one mold of a Batman figure, which wasn't quite movie accurate, wasn't quite comic accurate, somewhere in between. 
but they use that same mold over and over again, coloring it differently and packaging it with different weapons. A lot of times, these weapons were holdovers from old figure lines. For example, the Bat Jet was from Silverhawks. The Bat Cycle and Joker Cycle were from Robocop and the Ultra Police. Even some of the weapons that were packaged with Batman, specifically Tech Shield Batman, came from unused, unproduced Silverhawks toys that would later see shelf space thanks to some weird deal with KB. Toy Biz lost the license to DC, but they gained the license to Marvel Superheroes, which was an okay line at first that grew into something great. As such, since we had DC superheroes on shelves, Marvel superheroes on shelves, as well as the Kenner Dark Knight collection, I started collecting these toys side by side. And specifically, I got analogs. So Superman would hang out with Captain America. Here is where Daredevil and Batman became analogs to me. In my mentality, in my viewpoint, these two were cut from the same cloth. They were the same dark marauding Avenger. So the first team-up that ever happened for me was in 1990. However, 24 years later, I've grown older. I've read more. I've studied more on these characters. I learned more. It's not entirely true. Daredevil is not Red Batman. Batman is not always a Dark Avenger of the Night. These are two multifaceted characters that, sure, they have some complementary features, but they're both very much individual pieces of art. So to present these two crossovers and be able to discuss this at length has been something 24 years in the making. That may well be a new record for the length of time it takes to make a podcast episode. But I decided if I'm going to do a Batman special, if I'm going to break the format, let's break it right. Let's put in some nice extra bits. So on the agenda is Batman's first appearance in Detective Comics number 27, followed by the first entry in the crossover series, Daredevil Batman from Marvel Comics. After that, we'll be looking at DC's entry, as well as my favorite Batman story ever told. So this is definitely a jumbo-sized episode, definitely a special episode for me, and I'm hoping by the time this is done, it's a special episode for you. I'm anxious to get started, so what I'm going to do is play a quick podcast promo for a Batman film-related project from former guest host W. Blaine Dowler. And when we come back, we will look at The Dark Knight and how he compares to The Man Without Feet. April 18, 1939, a legend was born. On July 16, 1943, that legend came to the big screen for the first time. Join me, Blaine Dowler, on our journey through the 12 theatrical releases of a Batman franchise, from the serials of the 1940s to the Adam Westbert Ward film, through the Tim Burton relaunch, Mask of the Phantasm, Halle Berry's Catwoman, and the Nolan trilogy, as we look at how each entry represented the source material and how the source material changed as a result of each movie. New episodes are released on the 14th of each month throughout 2014, the 75th anniversary of the character. Find Big Screen Batman at Bureau42.com, in iTunes, or on Stitcher.
No, not a perfect world. Now, we've all been regaled about the origins of Batman, so I'm not going to go too far in depth with that. National put out a call for a superhero like Superman. Robert Kahn, a.k.a. Bob Kane, created a Birdman concept. He collaborated with Bill Finger, who contributed several ideas that helped form Batman from Birdman, which is a PC way to say that. If it were my real opinion, which I'm not giving, my real opinion would be that Bob Kane wheeled and dealed himself a nice chunk of change and a nice creator credit, and then spent the next 60 years in a Hugh Hefner smoking jacket acting like he's the Rick James of comics. Baddest motherfuckers of all time. One of the best singers, one of the best looking motherfuckers I've ever seen. Hold my drink, bitch. But I'm not giving my real opinion. So angry emails are not needed, or nor would they be responded to, only if I was actually giving said opinion. Regardless of who contributed what to Batman, the creation has outlasted the creator. And even today, Batman can be found pretty much anywhere merchandise is sold. But he had a very simple debut in Detective Comics number 27, something I'm about to talk about. But if you want some really good discussion on this, I point you to Legends of the Batman. This was a podcast hosted by Michael Bradley and Michael Kaiser. It's no longer in production, but the episodes are still out there. I highly, highly recommend it. It's at BatmanLegends.com. Michael Bradley actually spun out of that and is now doing a Superman Batman podcast at GreatCrypton.com. Highly recommended. As for Detective Comics number 27, it reached us in April of 1939 with a May 1939 cover date. The cover is easily one of the most recognized comic book covers in history, right up there with Action Comics number one. You probably know it from memory, but against a yellow sky, the winged, cowled form of Batman swings across the page with a rope in one hand and a clearly scared criminal type held in a chokehold in the other. From a nearby rooftop, two more gun-toting criminals watch in fearful helplessness. Just beneath the Detective Comics logo, the cover copy declares, starting this issue, the amazing and unique adventures of The Batman. The first Batman story itself is six pages long. It's entitled The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the credits include Bill Finger as writer and Bob Kane as artist. If you're interested in the story, it's been reprinted multiple times, beginning in 1969 with Detective Comics number 387, also in the hardcover book Batman from the 30s to the 70s, the oversized famous first edition C28 from 1974, the Batman Archives Volume 1, Detective Comics number 627 from 1991, the Millennium Edition of Detective Comics number 27, the Batman in the 40s trade paperback, and the Batman Chronicles Volume 1 trade paperback, which is what I am reading it from. And the story begins at the home of Police Commissioner James Gordon, who is entertaining a rich socialite named Bruce Wayne. Gordon says that all is quiet except for this strange Batman fellow. But before Gordon gets too far with that, the phone rings, and he is alerted to the stabbing death of a chemical tycoon named Lambert. Gordon heads out to investigate, and Bruce tags along because, well, he has nothing more interesting to do. At the crime scene, Lambert's son is the suspect, but he proclaims his innocence. He states he found his father dying with the safe open, and his father's last words were, Contract. Contract. Now suspecting Lambert's business partners, Gordon has Lambert compile a list of them. They are Stephen Crane... Paul Rogers, and Alfred Stryker. In a bit of kismet timing, Stephen Crane calls the Lambert residence, and he begins to panic when he finds out Lambert's fate. Crane explains to Gordon that Lambert had received a death threat the day before, and Crane received the same threat. So now, he's scared for his life. Seemingly bored with all this police stuff, Bruce scoots off as Gordon and his policemen are about to head over to Crane's home. 
it won't do them any good because Crane is murdered moments later as a gunman raids his library and makes off with a single piece of paper. The gunman climbs to the roof of the house thanks to the help of his accomplice and both men turn to see the form of a bat. A tall, menacing shadow of a creature that fills both of them with dread. Luckily that dread is short-lived as the Batman beats the holy crap out of them and snatches the purloined piece of paper. The police arrive at Crane's house as the Batman takes off into the night to an unknown destination inspired by the mysterious paper. Elsewhere, Paul Rogers arrives at the lab of Alfred Stryker only to be knocked to the ground by the butler Jennings who places him in a dome which is used to kill guinea pigs. The Batman arrives in time to slip under the dome with Rogers and plugs the hose that is spilling poisonous gas into the dome. Then, using a wrench, Batman shatters the dome, freeing himself and Rogers. Jennings returns to find Rogers alive and the Batman, who knocks Jennings unconscious. Alfred Stryker then enters the lab, shocked to see all of this, and pulls a knife on Rogers, but the Batman wrestles the weapon away. The Batman then explains that he deduced from a contract found at Crane's house, remember the mysterious piece of paper? That all men were partners in the Apex Chemical Corporation. Stryker was paying off the partner's investment so he could be sole owner, but he was looking to expedite that process and keep some money in his pocket by deciding to kill the others instead. Stryker has a Scooby-Doo moment because he would have gotten away with it if not for that meddling Batman, and he tries to pull a gun. But Batman delivers a solid punch that sends Stryker flailing over a rickety railing into a vat of acid. With the mystery solved and the villain dissolved, Batman takes off into the night. The next day, Commissioner Gordon relays the tale to a bored Bruce Wayne, who goes home to Wayne Manor. The bored socialite enters a room and after a short while, exits the room as the Batman. So a little bit of a twist ending to the story. The audience wasn't made privy that Bruce Wayne and Batman are the same. In fact, Bruce Wayne is underplayed quite deftly, to be honest. We see him for a brief moment at the beginning, and then with all the police stuff, we're distracted until he scoots off. The story paces it so perfectly that you don't think much about Bruce Wayne leaving. Now, of course, we're 21st century readers. We know exactly what's happening. But the construction of the story is solid. As the cover said, these are unique adventures. That's not entirely accurate, but it's a new twist on an old favorite. See, Superman, who arguably started the superhero genre itself, twisted things around. He pulled from sci-fi. And he reversed the trend. Normally in sci-fi before this, it was a regular person sent to an extraordinary place. Superman flipped the coin on that, so it was an extraordinary person in a familiar place. With Batman, we don't see a new entry to the genre, per se. We see a pulp noir character, somebody we're familiar with. However, he is presented to us as a superhero. So he actually manages to bridge an old genre with a new Suddenly, we're able to look at Batman with new eyes because this isn't just a pulp hero, somebody who was nestled in the text pages of a pocket-sized novel book, but somebody who was on the comic book page alongside the Crimson Avenger and Slam Bradley, somebody who actually perfectly bridges both of those, the superhero detective. And uniquely, as I mentioned, we meet Bruce Wayne first and we hear a little bit about Batman, so the character already has a bit of legend behind him. But Bruce Wayne's debut is not very exciting, not very attention-grabbing. Again, perfectly constructed. Primarily because we're fascinated with the murder case. Bear in mind this is a simple, straightforward murder case. And so far as murder cases go. What I mean is, there's no supervillains. In a lot of ways, this story dates before the advent of supervillains, at least at a wholesale level. So we meet Bruce Wayne first, we don't meet Batman until halfway through the story when he has a great entrance on a rooftop. 
again, his legend precedes him. And the actual reveal does not disappoint. Batman, with his original costume design, which of course has not been that greatly differentiated, looks terrifying. The ears that we're used to coming straight up off of Bruce Wayne's natural ears are gone. We have ears that swoop back. Kind of like what we would think of with Wolverine now, even though by accident Wolverine's ears were based on this original Batman. The cape looks like it actually has spines in it. It looks like a living, breathing thing. This particular debut is comparable to Daredevil's debut 25 years later. In Daredevil number one, Daredevil himself shows up. He catches our attention, and then we learn more about him. Now, the format of comic books had changed by 1964. Here, they're still in an experimental phase. This gives Daredevil the benefit of a full comic book rather than six pages. Both also face a criminal conspiracy. I do want to point out that Batman does not use martial arts. Really, he has a more street boxing style. Very straightforward, very tough guy. Likewise, we have no sprawling Gotham City. In fact, there's no Gotham at all. That name would come much later. But Batman's adventure here takes him through more suburban homes. Things we would actually see. So the character's beginnings are from a grounded point. It's set in an area that you and I as people actually see in real life. Likewise, we don't see any gadgets. There's no Batmobile, just a regular car. No Batarang. No Batcave. Simply a handkerchief and a wrench and his mitts. Most of the defense of Batman is he's a realistic character. And I would say at his origin point here, yes, that's absolutely true. But he's evolved to remove that. Eventually, of course, Batman would take on a partner in Dick Grayson, a circus acrobat whose parents were killed, and he would become Robin with the Robin Hood-themed costume. We would add Alfred, originally Alfred Beagle, later Alfred Pennyworth, to the cast, who would grow from simple gentleman's gentleman to a genuine father figure and wonderful character in his own right. Batman would become more superheroic, moving from his pulp roots to add a Batcave, Batmobile, and build one of the greatest rogues gallery in comics. Where Daredevil has remained static to his original concept, Batman has evolved, and evolved greatly. And of course, the 25-year difference between Batman's debut and Daredevil's debut obviously begs comparison. As talked about in my first episode, Daredevil is looked at as a red Batman. And as I said at the top of the show, I always saw them as analogs. But how similar are they? Well, let's take a look at the main event. Marvel's entry... Daredevil and Batman, an eye for an eye. As was the custom at this time, crossovers between DC and Marvel came in pairs. For example, the Spawn Batman crossover had an offering from Image, and then an offering from DC. First up for our main event is the Marvel offering Daredevil Batman. Guess what the title of the DC offering is, that's right, Batman Daredevil. The 40-page prestige format comic came to us on January 15th, 1997. And I know what you're thinking, and you are right. 1997 was the year Batman and Robin came out. So in terms of my fandom journey, which began with the 1989 Batman, this was more towards the end of my childhood phase of fandom. I watched that movie franchise go from the phenomenon of the first movie, to the standard sequel presentation of the second one, to the surprise revival of the third one, and finally... Well, Batman and Robin. In the comics at this stage, Carl Kiesel was writing Daredevil, a run that is fantastic that he shared with Carrie Nord that I'm going to cover in its entirety at some point. Heroes Reborn was halfway through its run, in which Marvel had rebooted its heroes via image creators. Daredevil had actually just been in a pair of one-shot crossovers with Billy Tucci's She, presented just like this, Marvel offering one, Tucci offering one. Batman was quite busy himself, 
Not only was he about to hit theaters again, he was meeting aliens in one crossover, and the epic story The Long Halloween was underway. The official title of the crossover is Daredevil Batman, Eye for an Eye. It features a cover by Scott McDaniel. Both the Dark Knight detective and the Man Without Fear crouch at the bottom of the cover with the full moon off of Batman's shoulder. Bats fly off in the distance. In the dark background above them are the villains. Two-Face holding up his trademark coin and Mr. Hyde snarling and drooling. It's a strangely lackluster cover that does everything it should, which is a paradox, I know. McDaniel, who shared a run with Chinchester on the Fall from Grace storyline, has a streamlined, swirly kind of style. It's not quite animated, but characters are looking a little bit exaggerated. Very sleek, but very stylized. Again, I said this does what a cover should. It evokes a mood, and it shows the main characters, it shows the villains. But Batman and Daredevil crouching on a gargoyle just doesn't quite do it. it they only take up half the cover. And the villains aren't immediately recognizable. You kind of have to squint since they're in the same blue color. For a meeting as epic as this, and to be on a prestige format book... This definitely should have aimed a little higher at showing us something that really grabs our attention. Normally I don't talk about the back cover because I'm looking at reprints. Or, if it's a regular issue, there's an ad. But the back cover does have some text. It tells us, The creative team behind the best-selling Daredevil Fall from Grace have reunited to bring together comics two most famous inner-city Avengers. Weird way to put that. Daredevil and Batman. There's twice the threat to sanity and society as the treacherous Two-Face and Mr. Hyde set their twisted sights on capturing the power of deadly technology. The one hope for justice rests with the Dark Knight detective and the man without fear, but only if they can solve this brutal mystery and face down a haunted past. This text is set against a background of the two symbols, stylized as if they are being shown as a 3D relief and light shining on it. I think the background text doesn't clearly state what this story is going to be outside of one line, and that is, the treacherous Two-Face and Mr. Hyde have set their twisted sights on capturing the power of deadly technology. Technology is going to be a big component on this. So it's a book that's aiming to be ahead of its time. Does it succeed? We're going to find out. The credits overall are writer Dan G. Chinchester, penciler Scott McDaniel, inker Derek Fisher, letterer Bill Oakley, and colorist Gregory Wright. If you're wanting to catch this reprinted, you can find it in Crossover Classics Volume 3, the Marvel DC Collection trade paperback from 2002. But honestly, this issue and its DC component are actually pretty reasonably priced. So beginning with the story. Batman investigates a break-in slash murder slash vandalism of a Wayne Tech lab facility, which has been left pristine on one half and totally razed and wrecked on the other. Batman pretty simply puts together that Two-Face is to thank for the dead people who were working on a special project called a Neuronet Prototype. A few days later in New York, Daredevil investigates the violent deaths of two New York City utility workers who went underground to repair the phone system and got crushed for their troubles. Unknown to Hornhead, Batman is also investigating the maintenance tunnels, and of course he sees Daredevil and assumes him momentarily to be the culprit. Batman sneaks up on Daredevil, and it's only Matt's radar sense that staves off an attack from the Dark Knight. The two fight a bit until Daredevil manages to convince Batman that he is a good guy, and they're on the same case, so they should work together. A.K.A. pretty much every Marvel team-up ever. We meet, we misunderstand, we team up. But let's look at these opening pages. There's no ads, since this is prestige format. The interior cover gives us a lowdown on who Daredevil is and who Batman is. Again, Scott McDaniel is a very stylized artist. 
features are exaggerated, not quite to a full-on animation level, but definitely not anatomically accurate. For example, on the first page, the first shot we see is of Batman. There's a long text box that goes on the left side. It's a very small panel. For one thing, let me mention this should be a dramatic reveal. But it's actually pretty simple. He's standing in the wreckage, cape flowing everywhere, as if there's some giant set of fans making this thing flap in the wind. And the cape expands forever. If a cape was really that big, it would pretty much end up like the Incredibles. Somebody's getting sucked into an airplane vent, or just tripping over the thing. But the Batman himself, his figure is way too lanky. The figure is a suitable gymnastic body, but Batman should have some build to him. Granted, Tim Burton would disagree. If Batman was that big, he wouldn't need a bat suit to scare people. But Batman has what I would refer to as a swimmer's body, not a climber's body. And Batman definitely climbs, he swings. But the main anatomical piece that annoys me is the chin and the face. Batman has kind of a heart-shaped face. It comes down to a point at the chin, and the chin comes out like a giant claw almost. Sure, that plays into the natural shapes of the costume. And I've seen artists pull this off. Greg Capullo would be one I would think of where his Batman isn't anatomically correct, but it's appealing to the eye. The colors stand out, oddly enough. The technology is presented in a lime green, a good contrast against Batman's darker colors. Additionally, McDaniel doesn't consistently use light dramatically. On the second page, there's a close-up shot of Batman's face where the light hits it. Instead of silhouetting it and making it a moody piece, it just makes Batman look like he's just gotten sprayed with whiteout. It doesn't track down to the rest of his shoulders. There's a little wisp of it on the cape, but... It looks off. It doesn't look like the way light would actually hit something. Normally I wouldn't nitpick about something like that, but this shot is so staggeringly noticeable that I couldn't not mention it. And then we move to the maintenance tunnels of New York where we finally see Daredevil, yet another character entrance that's less than stellar. This is kind of a big deal. Marvel and DC don't cross over every month. And let's be honest, Batman has a movie that's coming down the pike. He's kind of a big deal. Sure, we know how that movie panned out, but they don't know it at this stage. His Daredevil is also basically using the same body template, which kind of makes sense. McDaniel did work on the character for quite a while, but it actually kind of works with Daredevil. He seems to have a better grasp on that character. Essentially, his Batman is Daredevil put into a Batman costume. The two are very similar to some extent, but physically they do two different things in a lot of ways. Daredevil is graceful and glides through the air. Batman swoops, and Batman is a little bit more blunt force. Not to say that his tactics aren't strategic, anything like that, but Daredevil is more, to use Luke Giaconetti's description, a pinball bouncing around the page. Now, as far as the story, we do move quickly to get these two on the stage. We jump right into the break-in at Wayne Tech. We don't see it. We see the investigation, which is good because, like Jaws, we assume the worst. There are no corpses there, but we know it had to be bad, and it had to be multiple corpses. And this also has a personal stake for Batman since, well, Two-Face used to be his friend Harvey Dent before he got scarred by acid and became the villainous Two-Face. And also because Two-Face hit a Wayne Tech facility. It hit Batman's home turf. It hit people that were working for Bruce Wayne. So it hits him personally. There's a bit of empathy, a bit of maybe responsibility. I'm not sure. I'm also not entirely convinced that Chinchester ever had a full grasp on Daredevil. That's commentary saved more for his run. But here I will say that he closes the eye of a maintenance worker, which Daredevil would know contaminates evidence. But he also turns to a rat who happens to be making some noise and shushes it and tells it to have some respect. 
What is this, Ben? Daredevil talks to rats now? Come on, dude. Although Chinchester does use a great concept for storytelling, he gives the two victims, the two NYC phone workers, names. And just a slight bit of background, very streamlined. They both just wanted to flip these switches and go get a bite of pizza. And of course, now they're dead. I mentioned Daredevil knowing better than to contaminate the evidence. There's also the instigation of why Batman thinks Daredevil is a culprit is the fact that he has blood on his hands. When he went to shut the maintenance worker's eyes, blood got on it, and he, quote-unquote, didn't notice. That blood is put on copper, which is what Batman notices. Let me say this again. Daredevil gets blood on his hands. On his gloves, yes, but on his hands and doesn't notice. The man can read print with his fingertips, just with the slight indentation that a printing press would put into a page. Blood, I don't know if you know this, is slightly moist. It would weigh on the glove itself. Daredevil would notice that he has blood on his hand. So Daredevil would be aware of that when he touches these brass wires. Yes, it's a convenient plot point to create the misunderstanding and lead these two into conflict. But if you're going to use a convenient plot point, please dig harder. I expect more out of somebody who's written a, as the back of the book says, best-selling run on Daredevil. Thankfully, this particular fight is short and sweet. Batman tries to attack. He manages to sneak up on Daredevil. The only thing that alerts Matt is the radar sense itself. So Batman's sneaking skills are on par with the hand. And I'm good with that. I would think Batman's training would be on par with what the hand went through. Luckily, his costume doesn't make him dissolve. The fight is mostly strike and dodge. Batman tries to strike. Daredevil dodges. Batman throws four batarangs, Daredevil catches them all, and this creates one of my favorite shots in the book, actually. Daredevil holding the batarangs up against his head so they swoop upwards like a pair of horns. It's not intentional, but it also shows Daredevil is agile, and he's a worthy competitor for Batman in the physical realm. However, the misunderstanding still doesn't work for me. I still can't wrap my mind around it. I know it's necessary for a Marvel crossover. But not only do we have the blood on brass, which Daredevil would be aware of and be careful about spreading because he's aware of crime scenes being a lawyer as well as a crime fighter, but we also have Batman jumping to conclusions. This costume person has blood on his hands, he must be the culprit. Even though Batman knows that he's tracking Two-Face. It doesn't make sense. It's not even good in the convenient plot device method. It just boggles the mind. The blood I can deal with to some extent. Daredevil just wasn't paying attention. But Batman? Batman would know who Daredevil is. He would likely have a file on Daredevil. He's the world's greatest detective, and even though Daredevil may not be Captain America famous or Spider-Man famous, word of the Man Without Fear would have reached Gotham. Which, ah, brings us to an important point. You notice that we just jumped right into the story. There's no explanation of how these two are meeting, which is always the smartest way to do a crossover. It basically posits that this is just a story that takes place in a universe where these two exist. Gotham City and New York exist side by side. Thank you for not giving us a headache-inducing reason why these two would cross dimensions. Trust me, these two are not fitted to some sort of sci-fi gateway to another dimension story. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Dave, we're not off to a very promising start. You've criticized the art. You've criticized the main precept of the story so far. What's good? Again, we start later in the story, and we fill in the blanks since then, so eight pages in out of 40, one-fifth of the book, we already have the heroes meeting and teaming up, and then we can move on and explain and fill in the gaps. At this stage in the read-through, it either has your attention or it doesn't. You're either bought in, or you just 
put the book down. I continued to read because, well, I wanted to see where it went. There were enough things put on the table with Two-Face being a villain that I wanted to see if they went for the gold. So let's find out if they did. We'll jump into the next section real quick. We are presented a video from the now-deceased Neural Net team that explains the process they were working on in the lab that Two-Face raided. The design of the Neural Net chip is to act as a human brain, so the tech is inserted into a living brain. Bonding with the gray matter, it grows an organic chip that is extracted and put into the computer circuitry. We jump back into the action as Two-Face and his new partner Mr. Hyde rob an arcade for their tech parts to be sold on the black market. The arcade's owner begs for his life but is mercilessly killed. Two-Face has been supplying Mr. Hyde the pill that introduces the neural net into the host body. Mr. Hyde is popping those left and right because he likes the rush of intelligence. We get an oddly placed flashback to Matt in law school debating the ethics of law and vigilantes. His opponent and the eventual winner of the debate, one Harvey Dent. After the loss of the debate, which is rare for Matt, he catches up with Harvey who challenges Matt to jump on the statue which has a scales of justice. In order to keep the statue from falling over, Matt does jump on the opposite scale of Harvey, and it turns out this is an effort to show that Matt is a risk taker, which was what Harvey thought. Let's stop for a moment. There is a clearly stated theme that comes up in this section that's not entirely followed through with. That is the theme of duality, which is something that I've seen with both of these characters. You have duality not only in Two-Face, which is Harvey Dent and Two-Face, two sides of the same coin, but also Mr. Hyde, who was once an intelligent scientist who decided to experiment with chemicals and turned himself into a Hulk-like monster. You also have the duality of an organic substance being turned into a technological substance, bridging this gap between technology and organics. Of course, you have dual villains and dual heroes. It's pretty clear right up front. I will admit that I'm quite impressed with the concept of the neural net. The element is introduced thanks to something called perceptrons, basically right into the gray matter. That way it does form the same pathways as the human brain. Then you would have a computer that works almost like AI, like a human brain itself. Yeah, it's a little heady for sci-fi, but still kind of impressive. Kind of a lofty concept. Again, duality is played out when we get to the arcade. The arcade owner shows a picture of his twin daughters, both of which have a dog in their hand. Two little girls, two dogs, we get the point. And it is set up that technological paraphernalia is going for a lot on the back market, which in the late 90s would make perfect sense. The boom of the computer age, the verging of the 21st century, pre-iPhone era. How these two teamed up? No way to know. It does mention that Two-Face tracked him down. But Two-Face also makes it a point to say that he tracked him down because he has a good head on his shoulders. And remember that Hyde is popping those pills. And again, we have an oddly placed flashback, but one that I'm really glad is in the book. The idea that Harvey Dent and Matt Murdock would have met in law school is genius. It's almost obvious, but it could have easily been left off the table. It definitely justifies Harvey's place in this book. And Harvey's definitely a big piece of this puzzle. Mr. Hyde more or less is along for the ride, and that's not a bad thing. I love that the two are debating vigilantism, and Dent is actually more pro-vigilante than Matt is. Dent sees vigilantism as inevitable. Matt still believes in the rules. And then just to make sure that the theme of duality is made absolutely 100% clear, we get to the statue of Lady Justice, Harvey Dent jumps on one side, Matt in order to balance out the statue, jumps on the other. You get it? Balancing the scales of justice. 
Two people who would one day become hero and villain. Oh, the theme is, you know, admittedly kind of likable. A little heavy-handed, definitely made very, very, very clear. Completely unsubtle. So I will actually take the more overt reference here to balancing the scales, just for the trading of the fact that Harvey Dent and Matt Murdock would have been some sort of friends. An uneasy alliance at that point. And this is also going to set up a point of contention between our two heroes, which we're going to look at right now. Daredevil and Batman continue to track Two-Face by basically having a verbal pissing match on rooftops. Batman puts together that Daredevil is blind, and Daredevil believes that there is still a man named Harvey Dent within Two-Face. But Batman only seeks justice and refuses to share his intel with Daredevil. Nor does he care about whatever is left of Harvey Dent. Only the monster, Two-Face, is left. Batman eventually tells Daredevil to beat it and hops in his Batmobile, but Hornhead isn't about to let the Dark Knight win an argument. He hops on the roof of Batman's signature ride and quickly finds himself thrown off when Batman hits the brakes. A game of chicken ensues with the Batmobile roaring at Daredevil who deduces that Batman is no killer. As with Harvey, he bets on the man under the mask and he bets correctly as Batman swiftly turns at the last moment amusing Daredevil a bit, but also proving Daredevil's bet was right. So we're finally getting to the crossover bit of the book. And this particular scene starts with Batman and Daredevil leaping across rooftops in what should have been a wonderful reveal. You almost get what McDaniel might have been going for, was introducing the two of them subtly, and then moving up to this shot of them just leaping. Admittedly, it is a gorgeous shot. Daredevil looks pristine. Almost like John Romita Jr., with a little bit of Romita Sr. thrown in. Batman looks a little bulkier here, thanks to the aid of some shadows. And the cityscape is, well, defined by its colors. Several gradient greens are used and blues to differentiate the two characters from their background. There seems to be a lot of steam, but atmosphere is important, right? As mentioned, Batman deduces from a subtle inclination in Daredevil's head when there's a sound, and flaring nostrils when there's potential sense that Daredevil is visually impaired. And if Batman was about to deduce that he was Matt Murdock, well, Daredevil kind of gives him that final clue by mentioning that he and Harvey knew each other from better times. Verbally, Batman dismisses it as, quote, an interesting, careless, and pointless admission, unquote, but there is a subtle smile on his face. For as unsubtle as parts of this book are, the relationship between these two is actually well done. Initial misunderstandings aside, of course. But once we get past that money shot, Batman seems to be flaring his cape a lot. Does the Dark Knight just wait to stand by air conditioner units that'll billow his cape in such a dramatic fashion? Because it's really not necessary. As we saw with Detective Comics number 27, Batman standing on a rooftop with his cape draped dramatically was quite effective. And again, we seem to have bats flying everywhere in the background. I signed on to see two superheroes teaming up, not necessarily a Party City ad for Halloween. Kudos, though, go to McDaniel's usage of the radar sense, which defines things with lines. It's not quite as advanced as we would see in the Mark Wade Paulo Rivera Daredevil, which brought a huge amount of visual flair, but the blacks and whites and Ramita Jr.-style line work really help sell that Daredevil is in a world of just complete darkness, shapes cast against it, and using white for the line work is exquisite. So kudos where it's due. The tit and tat back and forth is very good. Batman refuses to really team up, but Daredevil's willing to try to work together for the greater good. And I think that shows a fundamental difference in these characters. Beyond being mass superheroes with no powers, you would think the similarity would be their origin point. Both deal with sight in a weird way. Both deal 
with childhood trauma. Both deal with the loss of a parent or parents. For example, Matt lost his sight as a young boy. Years later, he lost his father to crime. Bruce lost his family to crime as well. He never lost his sight, but he had to see his parents die. Matt did not see the actual death of Jack Murdoch in any rendition. They have a similar M.O., and they have a similar point of origin. But the paths they took are completely different, and really, if you want to get into it, their origin points have distinct differences that help define the men and differentiate them. For example, both want to be a loner. Matt seems to be more successful at this than Batman is. Batman took on Robin. Eventually, he grows into a Bat family with Batgirl, who would become Oracle and be replaced with a different Batgirl. Batwoman, Nightwing, Huntress, an entire Bat family, a Bat network. For a loner, Batman is surrounded by basically a franchise, which is what Grant Morrison took the ball and ran with. But Matt has always had a conservative supporting cast. Sure, he has some superhero friends and allies, Power Man and Iron Fist, occasionally Moon Knight, the Defenders, but these were all characters that stood on their own where the Bat family stemmed out of Batman himself. The difference is Batman will keep people at arm's length. That says a lot about both of these characters. Batman, for all of the positing that he will make about being a loner, is surrounded by a family. Daredevil, not so much. Here's why. Before the childhood trauma of losing the Waynes, Bruce had a fairly idyllic experience. Both parents, wealthy, which was all taken away from him. Bruce lost an ideal world. Matt, however, grew up with one parent not knowing who his mother was until much, much later in life, and that revelation is a mind blower. They grew up with no money. I mean, we're talking eating macaroni and cheese, scraping by. Add in the bullying, the loss of sight, and by the time Jack Murdoch was dead, Matt was used to scraping by and he was used to the rough life. Matt was used to being a loner. Matt was already conditioned to that when he became Daredevil. Batman is trying to create a utopia in his own mind because he came from that idyllic experience. Which is why he has Dick as a son. Which is why he has Tim Drake as a son. Which is why he takes Barbara under his wing. Batman is all about family. And I'm sure somewhere in his intelligent mind, he realizes that. He appreciates his family, even as he's keeping them at arm's length. Sometimes that's for their own protection. Sometimes that's for his protection to allow him to do what he needs to do. It's part of the hero's sacrifice. So even though childhood trauma formed these two and loss of a parent formed these two, the experiences and the effects are completely different. Sure, they both led to masked superheroes who have similar agendas but they go about those agendas completely differently, and I would describe it as this. Daredevil has a job, whereas Batman has a mission. So two very drastic effects from a very shared origin point. Which, to apply it back to what we're seeing here, is why Batman is pushing Daredevil away. He's not a member of Batman's family. He's not organic to Batman's world. He's a foreign body. So like an antibody, Batman is pushing that foreign body out of the situation. Whether that's for Daredevil's protection or his own isn't made clear, and that's what I like. This particular section, despite it being a bit of a pissing match, gives us a little bit to chew on in terms of these two characters and how they're interacting. And both are actually on point. This is where Chinchester does excel, with more of the interpersonal communications and reactions to one another. To further that point, Daredevil is speaking of Harvey Dent as Harvey, as the boy he once knew. It's not out of ignorance or wanting to dismiss who Two-Face is, it's through blind faith. 
Daredevil wants there to be a Harvey Dent in there somewhere. There has to be a redemption for the justice system. This is still the lawyer trying to believe in the path he's taken, trying to believe in a client of sorts, even though he's only arguing against the Batman. And knowing what we know about Batman, a lot of what's going on internally is his hope that Harvey is still in there. However, Two-Face has crossed a line. He attacked a Wayne Tech facility. He attacked people who were under Bruce Wayne's care and employment. So he's very, very motivated to bring Two-Face down. If it has to be hard, that's fine. Just short of murder, fine. Daredevil's wanting to file an appeal with Two-Face to try to communicate with the Harvey Dent within them. Again, Batman's on a mission. Daredevil's on the job. Both are very, very valid, but very different, even though they perform the same thing. And then there's the Batmobile. Batman playing chicken with Daredevil, to the point of scaring him, but Daredevil still has a bet on the man under the mask rather than the urban legend. Again, another little subtle nod. Batman's tactics rely on fear. Daredevil is the man without fear. At this stage, Batman is testing Daredevil's metal, and likewise, Daredevil is testing his. Daredevil theorizes that Batman actually wanted Daredevil involved with this and manipulated the situation to get him into Batman's face. Batman is probably looking for an ally and a good resource to have in New York. I'll buy that Batman found Daredevil in the right place at the right time and manipulated the situation to basically test out this potential resource. I mean, Batman's not going to put his life on the line with a batarang until he's tested it thoroughly, correct? Why would he do that with a potential ally? So across the eight pages, we get a huge amount of information. We have to work to sort through all of this and what's really happening here, which is not a bad thing. Because this story moves so quickly from beat to beat to beat, it's nice to have a moment to stop and think about these two characters and see them put up against each other and test their ideologies within each other. But we have one final section of the story to talk about before we wrap it up and talk about it overall. So without further ado, the conclusion to Daredevil Batman Eye for an Eye. Another video from the Neural Net team shows the dramatic effects of inserting the technology into a host. That dramatic effect is death. No subject has survived the experience. But the video also mentions that a field unit has been designed to dissolve the growth just before Two-Face's attack on the lab. Speaking of Two-Face and his partner, Mr. Hyde, they're trying to sell some valuable tech, but when the buyer, Wendy Myro, suggests payment is something other than cash, Mr. Hyde brutally kills her. Daredevil and Batman find her body a short time later, and to prevent further deaths, Batman finally tells Daredevil about the neural net. A small strand of Hyde's hair confirms that Two-Face is using Hyde as a sort of living incubator for the neural net, and pushing Hyde for his own profit despite the fact that it will kill the villain. To that end, Hyde and Two-Face raid a New York computer cafe and terrorize the customers, creating a tense hostage situation. Batman and Daredevil arrive for the inevitable fight and pull ahead by switching dance partners. Daredevil takes on Two-Face, while Batman faces Mr. Hyde. Hyde is overcoming Batman while Daredevil speaks to the inner Harvey Dent, reasoning with a boy who took a bet on a young, risk-taking Matt Murdock. The rational side of Harvey takes control and uses the dissolving field agent to destroy the neural net inside Hyde's head, ending the rampage. But Two-Face tells the duo that this was the last of Harvey Dent, to which both Batman and Daredevil say, rest in peace. A short time later, at a benefit in Gotham City for the victims of Two-Face's raid on the lab, Matt Murdock comes face to face with Bruce Wayne. Matt hints that he knows who Bruce is, and Bruce tells Matt, don't come back to Gotham. 
And the book ends with Matt asking Mr. Wayne if he is daring him to return. So the concept of the neural net plays out throughout the book. First we learn what it does, then we figure out the effect. That's how we are able to put together that Two-Face is using Hyde as a human incubator. That's why he's allowing Hyde to do irrational things like kill a buyer. They are trying to sell tech stuff, so killing the money would be a little irrational. No wonder Two-Face was pretty laxed about it. Hyde's physical appearance begins to change as he's pushed further and further. At first he seems pretty normally built. I mean, big guy, but slowly his hairline seems to recede as veins pop out of his forehead. It's pretty grotesque. Also grotesque is Hyde's killing of Myro. Her name is Wendy Myro. She has jewelry made out of tech. Cables are wrapped around Myro's head and... Luckily, we don't see the worst of it, but by the time Batman and Daredevil arrive at the location, she's already hanging from the ceiling. This is kind of the breaking point, where Batman says, yes, let's prevent more, let's work together, Daredevil. Which bothers me because I think Batman is a little mishandled there. Sure, he would want to keep Daredevil at arm's length. Lack of trust, lack of knowledge. But at the same time, Batman would want to know what Daredevil knows. He's already spotted that Daredevil has great powers of perception. Batman would utilize Daredevil. Not to the extent that Two-Face is using Mr. Hyde, but Batman's smart enough to know an asset when he sees it. It's sad that this had to be the point when Batman says, yeah, okay, sure. And it's a little frustrating, but it's the normal turning point. We have the initial misunderstanding, the tense discussion, and then finally the point when the heroes realize that if we work together, we can accomplish more. Standard, by the numbers, team up. The theme of tech continues as it's an internet cafe that has taken over. Really, once you get to this final act, it just devolves into a standard fight. And again, by the numbers. One hero takes on the other hero's villain and vice versa. There's nothing wrong with by the numbers, and it works, but it doesn't innovate. Admittedly, this was a time where comics were trying new things. Say what you want about cover gimmicks, but they were new, they were fresh, that's why we were drawn to them, that's why they sold. That and the potential value. Additionally, McDaniel's art kind of devolves. It's hard to follow exactly what's happening. This was actually a very hard point of the story to synopsize. But it does break down pretty simply, as we saw. They switch dance partners. And Matt is proven right when Harvey Dent does come out for a brief moment. He does the right thing. Matt's blind faith is justified. But the saving of Hyde, even though at this stage Hyde's pretty much breaking down and on the verge of death, shows compassion on both parts. Even a villain's life is not worth risking. Both still believe in the justice system, both believe in the inherent good of people. Daredevil's more outspoken because, well, he stands in court arguing this stuff all the time. There's an attempt at humor with a potential film student talking about different movies as this goes forward, something that we saw Frank Miller do when Bullseye was in the theater watching the Maltese Falcon. And then we come to the end, where we're in Gotham now, and both men, for the first time in this book, appear out of costume. Chinchester is at his best in this scene and says a lot about the book in total. Neither one says, hey, I know you're Batman, I know you're Daredevil, because they're both smart enough characters to not do that. And it buttons the theme of duality when Matt asks, there was a technology that changed physical under certain psychological situations like one man was really two. And of course, Matt would immediately know that Bruce Wayne is Daredevil by the heartbeat, by the scent, by the simple outline. Because a costume like Batman's isn't going to fool Matt Murdock. So there's a bit of a begrudging respect built between these two men. Something that's going to carry through into the next crossover, which does tie into this. So overall thoughts on the book? Well, to reiterate, it was very by the numbers. When digging deeper, there are spots of very fertile conversation pieces, putting these two against each other. But this seemed to really want to just go for 
pretty images and standard fight scenes over really delving into the psychology of two very, very fascinating characters who both complement and contrast each other. However, had that been dived into, there wouldn't be much to say on this particular episode. And sadly, I don't have much more to say on it. It did exactly what it should do without going above and beyond. But I will give full disclosure, maybe I'm biased because I compare a lot of these DC Marvel crossovers to one of my favorite crossovers of all time, John Byrne's Captain America and Batman. That was a crossover that innovated by taking these two characters who were very popular in their modern versions and then throwing them into a World War II era and reflecting how the characters were presented in that era. Had I been writing this, it would be a Daredevil and Batman from the 1960s. And I will note one final thing. The supporting cast for either never really appears. Foggy appears at the very end with Matt, but ultimately it really is just these two men on a fairly simple, straightforward case. Again, since this wasn't very expensive and it's easy to find, I do recommend giving it a read if you're a fan of either or both characters, but I definitely would not make it a priority. Make it a curiosity. But here's the question. Did DC do better? Did the second round approve on the first one? Does a new creative team have more to say on these characters? And that is what we're going to find out in the second half. For a moment, I am going to take a quick break while you listen to this ever-entertaining bit of audio. What listing? Batman. Thank you. Please wait while an operator looks... I'm sorry, what was thing? Batman. Uh-huh. Is that Manhattan? Gotham City. Gotham City. Where's that? What state? Manhattan. Oh, in Manhattan. Is that a business, sir? Batman? Yeah. Residence. Residential. Thank you. Do you have a first name? Bruce. Thank you. I'm sorry, sir. Checking my Manhattan residential listing. Last name Batman, first name Bruce. I show no listing. How about just Batman. Um, I don't have anything, just Batman. Nothing residential. He lives in a lair. Wayne Manor. Oh, yeah, you know, I don't have anything in Wayne Manor either, sir. Batman? Yeah. Batman. I'm sorry. Batman. I guess, you know, he's just not listed. I know. Yeah. I'll find him. Okay, well, good luck. I'll track him down with all of my hatred. Oh, okay. Oh, righty. <laughs> Bye. Batman. Rises. 
Wait till they get a load of me. The second installment came to us on November 3rd, 1999, not too far removed from three years later. At this stage in both characters' history, Dark Victory, the sequel to Long Halloween, was revving up as the epic No Man's Land storyline was winding down in the main books. In just a short while, Scott McDaniel, the artist on the first installment, would take over art chores on the main Batman book. Daredevil, meanwhile, had been rebooted. There was a brand new number one, boosted by the star power of filmmaker Kevin Smith doing his Guardian Devil storyline. And at this stage, after Smith's exit, David Mack was writing the book, which unfortunately led to some delays in the schedule. This very issue came out on a month when Daredevil was not published due to one of those delays. The title to the sequel, and in a lot of ways it is a sequel, is Batman Daredevil King of New York. The credits have Alan Grant as writer, Eduardo Barreto taking over art chores, letterer Ken Bruzenak, and colorist Matt Hollingsworth. The cover shows Batman and Daredevil standing cast against a full moon on a pair of rooftop precipices as steam rises in wisps around them. Batman is in the lower left-hand side, crouched over and cast in shadows with a gleaming batarang in his hand, and Daredevil stands slightly higher on the right-hand side, also in shadow to obscure facial features. But his form looks ready to leap into action, and a section of his billy club rests in either hand. This cover, in a lot of ways, emulates the same one. It's the same concept. He would have the same description. Batman and Daredevil crouching, ready for action. But this one is more effective to me, even though the characters are more obscured. Instead of being relegated to the lower half of the cover, the characters stand tall, and they're represented very well. The back cover actually shows kind of a four-square pattern. An image of Batman's face is in the upper right corner, although it is in error because his mask doesn't cover his nose. So it actually looks like Daredevil is in both of these. Daredevil himself is in the lower right-hand cover and definitely shows his horns. Not sure where this happened, but Batman definitely has a mask that comes over his nose, definitively. The text uh, gives a little bit of conflict to me, I'll tell you why. I'll just read it to you. For over 60 years, Batman has been featured in newspaper strips, radio, television, movies, and of course, comic books. Created by Bob Kane in 1938, he is one of the most recognizable icons on Earth. This is a true statement. Daredevil's text reads, Daredevil, Marvel Comics' unique Man Without Fear, was launched in 1964 by Stan Lee and Bill Everett. He is an enduringly popular member of the Marvel Universe of Superheroes. Does that seem a bit slanted to you? I mean, it's not that the statement isn't true. Daredevil hasn't had that much exposure to other media. Batman's had a live-action serial, cartoons. At this stage, his franchise had, well, petered itself out, but still, it was a successful franchise three-fourths of the time. But still, it seems a little disingenuous. However, this is the DC offering, so certainly they're going to want to bolster their character. Although, ironically, since DC is putting this out, Batman's mask should have been represented more correctly. Hmm. But the DC installment actually breaks down into four chapters, which makes it easy to synopsize and discuss. So we will begin with chapter one, A Devil in Gotham. Catwoman swings across the skyline of Gotham City en route to a rooftop rendezvous with two noticeably scared thugs. In her possession, purloined legal documents procured from the law firm of Nelson and Murdoch, all pertaining to the Kingpin. But unknown to her or the men she is meeting, they are being watched from a distance by Daredevil. 
But as Batman swings toward the clandestine meeting, Daredevil swings into action to prevent the Dark Knight from interfering with his reconnaissance. Best laid plans and all of that, Daredevil knocks Batman out of the air, but right into the rooftop he was trying to watch, spooking Catwoman and her contacts. A skirmish ensues, ending with two knocked-out Gotham heavies and an escape by Catwoman. The thugs refuse to spill who arranged the meeting, which was to trade cash for the Kingpin's files. But Daredevil reveals that her briefcase had a tracker inside. As Daredevil leaps after Catwoman, Batman follows and Daredevil fills the Cape Crusader in on the contents of the legal briefs, incriminating evidence against Wilson Fisk. Catwoman eludes her pursuers by slipping the tracker onto a stray cat and goes to meet the mastermind behind the botched rooftop swap, the Scarecrow. Scarecrow sends Catwoman off to grab a stash of cash at a Grand Union station locker and revels in his new found prize. And so the first chapter ends. Just a spoiler, that is the last we see of Catwoman, but she is a welcome addition. Eduardo Barreto has a much more grounded and well-rounded art style than Scott McDaniel. And his Catwoman looks fantastic. I've always liked this costume of the purple bodysuit with the long boots and long gloves, the cat mask with her hair flowing. Like its predecessor, we begin with the story already ensuing. Daredevil watching. And of course, since the files were stolen from Nelson and Murdoch, Daredevil's already on top of this. We're also thrust into a nice mystery as to why Catwoman would steal legal documents and try to sell them. Not really her style. She's more the jewelry type. Unlike its predecessor, this installment gives us a full-page splash of the two characters meeting. It's a little awkward because Daredevil's dropping down on top of Batman, but it is a properly paced reveal of our two characters meeting. Beretto's Daredevil is also scores ahead of McDaniel's. He still has the proper body, but it seems less lanky. While I like McDaniel's version of Daredevil, especially in the red costume, Beretto seems to have a much more Gene Colan vibe going on, which is always going to win me over. Simple as that. Likewise, Beretto gives Batman the proper thickness and muscle stature that I would expect from Batman. He's supposed to be a solid wall. But he doesn't skimp on some stylized moments. For example, when the two are hitting the rooftop, Batman ricochets off and is in, and is cast in shadow, looking very, very excellent. Something that Todd McFarlane tried to do in the Batman Spawn crossover, but just ended up looking sloppy. Beretto maintains control over the image, though. We get a fairly standard beat-up of some thugs and then a nice chase of Catwoman, and I love, love, love that she eludes them. Daredevil apparently likes it too because he laughs. He can see the ridiculousness in this situation. Two highly trained superheroes trying to track down the world's greatest thief. After the experience of the first one, Batman's a little bit more open to teaming up with Daredevil, having basically gained a certain level of respect for the man without fear. Speaking of fear, as I mentioned, Catwoman takes off, even though it's kind of sad, I was really enjoying her, but we get Scarecrow, which is a very good fit. Much like Two-Face that represents the duality of a superhero, Scarecrow being a villain who uses fear as a weapon against the man without fear seems like a perfect, perfect idea. My favorite shot in this chapter is Catwoman as she leaps away on the last page. Beretto makes her look extremely attractive, but her body proportion isn't ridiculous and she's not posed at any time in an impossibly 90s pose. She looks like she's leaping. She looks like gravity has an effect. And again, I like this costume but I like Catwoman overall. So the die is cast. Scarecrow is up to something, and he wants some information on the Kingpin. It seems a little strange for Scarecrow, not quite his M.O. So, our two heroes are now teaming up to investigate. Let's take a look at Chapter 2, Guns and Roses. 
Batman takes Daredevil to the famous Bat Cave, where the Bat Computer analyzes the sweat and body oils of the rooftop thugs left behind on Batman's gauntlet. The analysis reveals the familiar signature of Scarecrow's fear gas. But Scarecrow isn't really much for organized crime, however a Gotham New York crime cross-reference does point to a potential gun-running scheme. So Batman and Daredevil hit the streets, working their way through the street thugs for info until they are able to learn of a specific run happening that night. In the Batmobile, they catch the delivery truck, cleverly disguised as a floral delivery van, while on the delivery route and force it off the road by shredding the tires. But when the crimson and black clad heroes open the truck, they find it full of bombs made to look like little scarecrow dolls. The duo manage to avoid the explosion along with the truck's drivers, and Daredevil demands to know what the delivery address is. At the intended destination, a warehouse in New York City, a truck arrives, but instead of guns, it holds the scarecrow himself, greeting the gathered army of mafia enforcers. Using the fear gas to bring the Underworld Army in attendance under his power of suggestion, Scarecrow declares himself the King of the New York Underworld. When one of the mob enforcers doesn't quite succumb to the fear gas and questions Scarecrow, he finds himself at the business end of all of the other guns in his compatriots' hands. And the chapter ends with the Scarecrow unleashing the opening salvo in his coup on the Kingpin. So this chapter really moved quite quickly. It had a lot going for it, and I liked it a lot. Barreto draws a very great Batcave with the familiar elements, but doesn't overdo it with multi-page splashes. He's not showing off. He's storytelling. We get the familiar dinosaur and giant penny, the Bat computer, and the Batmobile's circular parking spot. And Barreto expertly uses shadows here. He defines a lot of things by simply silhouetting it in the darkness. It definitely feels legendary, and it's definitely cool to see Daredevil in the Batcave. We also get a shout-out for Reed Richards, when Daredevil mentions that Richards would be jealous of this setup. Again, this is happening in a nebulous continuity where Marvel and DC exist. To what extent? Not sure. And the thing is, it doesn't matter. This is a simple, straightforward story. Thankfully, still not burdened with any tricky continuity. I got a little bit of a smile when Batman analyzed his gauntlet for the greases and oils, basically emulating Daredevil's senses in way of the Bat computer. An unintentional echo of the previous installment, but still a nice moment. I like seeing detective work used. I typically associate detective work more with Batman than Daredevil, but both are in their element here. In the previous installment, the Batmobile kind of looked awkward, a little overdone. Here it's much smoother, much sleeker, much more appealing to the eye. The curves just work better. I definitely like the implication that Batman and Daredevil have had a busy night. We have three panels where one goon is hanging from a rooftop by a rope. We have a smashed window at the Mambo Club. And police finding a random burglar by the side of the road with the TV he was stealing and a sign that says stolen. With 40 pages to tell a story, and this applies to both of them, you've really got to meter out your real estate. Sure, we could have seen all this questioning, but Grant definitely gives us the correct implication to put the pieces together and get a little chuckle. We get a reference to the previous installment when Batman is asking Daredevil within the Batmobile if he'd prefer to ride on the outside, and Daredevil says once was enough, thank you. The gun running operation seems like a good, solid fit for Scarecrow, as guns are seen as elements of fear, or instigators of fear. Definitely right up his alley. And the shredding of the tires works, because basically Batman 
releases a map from the back of the Batmobile that sits on the road with a bunch of spikes, and the van goes off the road. But the Scarecrow is very scenery-chewing. He has little dolls of himself that explode, and when he makes his entrance into the warehouse... It's very old school superhero and I found myself really, really liking this because sometimes it's fun to just let a villain be a villain, chew the scenery right up. And the poor mob enforcer who just didn't quite succumb to the fear gas, we're going to see him again, but uh, he's not going to be in such great shape. We get a dramatic pullback from the warehouse as somebody walks by and the scarecrow's laugh just echoes out into the alley. Overall, at the halfway point of the book, I bought into this one a lot more than the Marvel offering. Daredevil felt a little more on point. Batman felt a little bit more on point. It felt like the two heroes were in control of this one. Whereas in the previous installment, everything seemed a little too chaotic. But if chaos is your bag, well, the next chapter, Chapter 3, A Dark Knight in Manhattan, is going to probably blow your mind. At Fisk Tower, two mob soldiers report the Scarecrow's takeover attempt to the Kingpin. Fisk is not happy. Not one bit. So one soldier is thrown out of a tempered glass window and the other is shot down by machine gun installations in the office. Meanwhile, Daredevil and Batman investigate the warehouse where the Scarecrow's reign of fear started and where the poor schmo who spoke up has been riddled with bullets and is now dead as a doornail. A piece of straw on the floor confirms Scarecrow's presence and a random news report, overheard by Daredevil's enhanced hearing, tells of a rash of violence across New York. More interesting, the attacks seem to be on operations run by the Kingpin, but this isn't Scarecrow's style. What is his endgame? Well, there is one person who might be able to pinpoint Scarecrow's new base of operations. The Kingpin. So Daredevil travels to meet up with the Kingpin who detects Batman and invites him to join in on the conversation. The heroes are looking for any building that might be able to send fear gas across New York and cause a citywide panic. Kingpin, careful to avoid any admission, mentions a west side tower, but Daredevil is dubious. As he and Batman talk on a rooftop about Kingpin's motivations, an attack helicopter arrives piloted by Fisk. The Kingpin opens fire, but both heroes manage to dodge the attack, and as Kingpin flies off, Daredevil states that Kingpin knows where he's going, so they can follow. Like the Scarecrow, Kingpin is given a chance to chew the scenery. His office is rendered in wonderful dark deco design, and apparently machine gun installations come complete at Fisk Tower. No, if we think about the logistics of installing something like that, it will only lead to madness. Just assume the Kingpin can have machine guns put into his walls. You'll sleep easier that way. I mentioned that he throws one of the messengers who has some sort of box for the Kingpin out of a tempered glass window. This challenges my suspension of disbelief just a notch more than machine gun installations. Tempered glass windows, especially on a high-rise, are meant to withstand huge, huge amounts of impact. Which is a weird thing to get hung up on, but I kind of got past it by assuming Kingpin's build, being a pure muscle, managed to allow him to exert the force needed to shatter somebody through a tempered glass window. I'm going to accept it, although it's harder for me to swallow that. Batman and Daredevil continue some detective work, finding the piece of straw, and continuing their trail. It's a plausible trail. They got the address of this warehouse from the delivery person. Now they know Scarecrow is there. Unfortunately, that trail goes cold, which leads them to the Kingpin. But oddly enough, it's Batman who's using his senses more than Daredevil. For example, he notices circular patterns in the van in the dust. This is something Daredevil may not have been able to pick up since he's blind. Sure, he could have felt it, but... This just shows that both heroes have gifts in the similar realm. 
Both are gifted investigators in their own way. They just have different methods of perception. The gas canisters are a logical way for Batman to put together that whatever Scarecrow's endgame is, it involves massive amount of fear gas. And with Scarecrow's Reign of Terror, which is deftly told on one page, Batman is able to put together, oh, Scarecrow's going to cause city-wide panic. It's not a huge bridge to cross at this stage, knowing Scarecrow's M.O. And probably my single favorite sequence in the book comes right after we see Scarecrow's Reign of Terror. Batman and Daredevil are swinging or leaping across New York. Batman on his batline, Daredevil doing acrobatics. Gorgeous art that makes me think of Gene Colan. Colan, for those of you that don't know, did have a very distinctive run on Batman. But his art style was very different from what he used on Daredevil. Eduardo Barreto kind of invokes both takes on the character. It's not an intentional homage, I don't believe, but it works for me in my own head. And this sequence ends with both of them dropping into the canopy of the Batmobile. Just gets my engines revving, no pun intended. Kingpin is carefully avoiding any admission while still offering odd pieces of information. Kingpin stays fairly well on character in this chapter. Next chapter, well, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But he's aware that Batman is outside the window. It's not that Kingpin has great powers of perception, not in the way that Daredevil does. Kingpin has a very logical mind. Daredevil's tracking Scarecrow, so therefore Batman must be related somehow. I was still enjoying the story right up to the point when Daredevil and Batman leave Kingpin's office, and then a attack helicopter arrives, piloted by Fisk. Piloted by Fisk? Where did Fisk learn to fly a helicopter? Why does this remind me of Trial of the Incredible Hulk? Had anybody but Fisk been piloting this, I could have bought in. I guess it's something that has to move to the next act. This alone wouldn't kick me out of the story, but as we jump into the fourth chapter, Reign of Terror, I'm going to come to the moment where I basically put down the book and shook my head. That's right, let's look at the final chapter of Batman Daredevil, King of New York. At the top of the Statue of Liberty, the Scarecrow readies a massive fear gas bomb as the Kingpin's chopper arrives. Having tracked Scarecrow through the use of informants, the Kingpin grows closer to the statue, but the Scarecrow shoots the helicopter out of the sky. The Kingpin is able to, wait for this, leap from the fiery helicopter and grab a spire on Lady Liberty's crown. At that point, Batman and Daredevil arrive at the statue by boat. The heroes split up with Batman heading for the statue's head and Daredevil heading for the torch. Batman makes it to his destination and comes face to face with the Kingpin who proves to be a worthy physical foe for the Dark Knight. In the torch, Daredevil finds the Scarecrow who tries dousing Daredevil with fear gas, giving the man without fear visions of his many adversaries and tragic moments. But, well, he's the man without fear. So he shakes the fear gas and punches Scarecrow who falls off the side of the statue. Hornhead's handy billy club stops Scarecrow from going splat, and as soon as Daredevil states that the criminal is in custody, the Kingpin just stops fighting. But Fisk is still untouchable thanks to the threat of litigation, so the heroes head back to shore, taking the remaining victory of bringing in the Scarecrow. Batman says that you win some, you lose some, and Daredevil closes out the book by telling Batman, Welcome to the club called Humanity. So in case you missed the very intentional sarcasm about Kingpin jumping out of a fiery helicopter to grab onto the top of the Statue of Liberty, let me please be clear. What the f***? He jumps from the helicopter, which is, as stated, on fire. 
But Kingpin's doing it quite casually, just like you and I would get out of a car that's not on fire and up in the air. I could buy Kingpin making a leap, but when he grabs the top of the crown, I immediately shut the book and said, oh, hell no. Why is this such a challenge to my suspension of disbelief? I'm a pretty open-minded person. I like a little bit of reality and a little bit of fantasy in my superheroes. When you're dealing with a street-level superhero such as Daredevil or Batman, I lean a little bit more to the reality. I'm willing to make some hurdles in logic from time to time to allow the story to go forward, such as Kingpin piloting a helicopter. But this is ridiculous. The physics alone astound me. Judging from the way it's presented, the helicopter was above the tower plummeting. Probably plummeting at a very fast speed. Despite the propellers rotating, this thing is going down and going down fast. Judging, of course, by the fiery crash at the end of this. Kingpin would be leaping out and dropping at roughly the same rate. So when he grabbed onto the copper exterior of the statue, which in itself is not very friendly to gripping, his sheer weight, which yes, it's in muscle, but there's still weight, there's density and weight to muscle, would have yanked his arms out of the socket, causing them to go dead and for Kingpin to plummet. And bear in mind, I've just bought the idea that Kingpin has somehow worked out randomly that the Scarecrow is at the Statue of Liberty, which in itself is a leap in logic. Once again, I'm open-minded, but this visually turned me off of the book. But if you're going to cover something, you should read it all the way through. So I came back to it later and continued. Luckily, this scene doesn't poison what came before, simply the scene itself. Once I was able to get past the scene, with much weeping and gnashing of teeth, I went to this fourth act, which pretty much devolved exactly as we thought it would to heroes switching dance partners, but got kicked right back out of it when Kingpin punches a window on the Statue of Liberty. I'm still fine with that, even though it's somewhat tempered glass. It's an older structure. But to get in, he bends the thick copper window frame. What? I would rather the Kingpin's entrance to the statue remain ambiguous than this shot. But again, I have to see this all the way through. So I soldiered on. And there wasn't much to the fourth act. Kingpin is, of course, badass. Lots of strength. But Batman's, at this stage, fought Bane. He's fought the KG Beast. Batman has seen strong opponents in the physical realm and outsmarted them. To his credit, Batman gets a few good blows in, but wouldn't you think a Batarang would be more appropriate? Maybe some gas? I know Batman has Batarangs on his person, because as he and Daredevil arrive at the island, they meet a couple of henchmen of the Scarecrow, and both of them react, one with a Batarang, the other with a billy club, which made me smile. But Batman is not using his noggin here, and that bothers me a lot. But at the same time, it kind of comforts me. Because we're seeing a Batman that's making a mistake. He's choosing the wrong tactic. And it's very potential that had this fight continued, Batman would have been beaten, which defeats the theory that given prep time, Batman can beat anybody. I say that because Batman knew who he was going to face in the tower, at least one of two people. And if that logic was in effect, Batman would have figured out some sort of weakness to the Kingpin, whether that be psychological or physical. Likewise, the confrontation between Scarecrow and Daredevil was a bit of a dud. Sure, he gets doused with fear gas. He sees Elektra, Dr. Octopus, Nuke, and the Kingpin, all these things that plague him. But let's be honest, man without fear, it's in the job title. And then the moment that made me realize this whole fourth act of the book just falls apart. Daredevil kicks Scarecrow off the torch of the tower. He uses his billy club to snatch the Scarecrow by his ankle. Where is the inevitable snap that would come with yanking the arm out of its socket? 
because, once again, Scarecrow is plummeting from a high point. He's made his way down the arm. He's at least at the Statue of Liberty's chest by the time the Billy Club catches him. Several stories, he's gained a lot of momentum. The leg probably should have come off, and it may have. As I thought about it more, we don't see a snap, but we don't see anything that says that Scarecrow's leg is nothing more than a limp appendage. But if that wasn't enough, Kingpin stops fighting, which is fine. Kingpin threatens litigation, which wouldn't stop Batman from getting one more blow in. It's the dialogue that gets me here, though. The dialogue is a bridge too far because, as Kingpin is walking away from Batman, he says, and I quote directly from the book, Toodle Pip, old chum. What? The Kingpin is from New York, very definitively. It's that point of origin that allowed me to accept that in the Amazing Spider-Man issue that honored 9-11, Kingpin would be in the rubble. Because New York is his city. Doctor Doom, I have nothing on, dude. You're barking up the wrong tree. If you feel that that scene of Doctor Doom crying was justified, that's on you. But Kingpin is very much a part of New York and vice versa. He is not Cesar Romero. I facepalmed at that point. Up till now, Kingpin's dialogue has actually been pretty decent in this book. He comes off eloquent, which is normal, because Kingpin is definitely an intelligent person. But Pip Tootle Old Chum? No, I'm done. So my final verdict on this second go-round is three-fourths of it was actually really good. The Scarecrow got to ham it up. There was a very plausible reason for him to be doing what he's doing because, well, inciting fear in New York, that's right up his alley. The side effect that maybe the Kingpin would be fearful as well? Definitely, I'm fine. Batman and Daredevil got along. They understood each other, benefiting from the previous crossover, which is in canon with this one, and they worked a very good trail of detective work to get to where they were. But as soon as we got to the last act, it was like Alan Grant just said, oh crap, I gotta wrap this up. Sure, Kingpin jumps out of a helicopter. There you go. Pip-pip old chum. Both characters get saddled with the idea that they are human characters, which is true to an extent. Most proponents of Batman will say he's a realistic character. And to that, I will ask this, and this applies to Daredevil and Batman. If they were realistic, why would you read them? Reality is boring. Reality is going to a job, going home, occasionally having some fun with friends, fretting over taxes, reading the newspaper while going to the bathroom. I have enough reality in my reality, so I want a little bit of fantasy from my fiction. Sure, that doesn't include the kingpin jumping out of a fiery cockpit to catch on to something that he shouldn't even be able to grab. But to believe that a man dressed as a bat can make a difference against villains like Mr. Freeze? Or to believe that a blind man in a devil costume can turn the tide of crime in Hell's Kitchen? Yeah, I'm completely on board with that. Because my fandom gives me hope that sometimes these unrealistic things that happen in our fiction can bleed over into reality. But that pretty much puts the point on these two crossover books. I have one more thing I want to talk about while we're on the topic of fandom, and that is my favorite Batman story ever told. So my favorite Batman story ever told. I'm not going to go full bore into it. Because with favorite stories, 
it's not necessarily about the mechanics of the story, it's about the effect the story had on you. Why it stands out, why it's important, why it is an enduring part of us. I first read this story in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. I continue to read that story in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. In preparation for this episode, I went out this week and bought another copy of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told to replace my original copy, which was massively destroyed years ago. But it originally appeared in The Brave and the Bold number 197, and it is the autobiography of Bruce Wayne. It was written by Alan Brennert, with pencils by the wonderful Joe Staten. And the story focuses on Batman of Earth 2. For those Marvel fans who are not familiar with Earth 2, essentially that is the Earth where the timeline progressed from the original debuts. So Batman's timeline went forward from 1939 rather than being rebooted for the Silver Age and the post-crisis era. As such, we're dealing with a slightly older Batman who is seeing his ex-girlfriend Linda get married. He's thinking about how Clark Kent and Lois Lane recently got married. Jay Garrick and Joan Garrick got married, and he's starting to realize his age and the fact that he's never had a life for himself, really. While at the wedding, Scarecrow attacks, dousing everybody with fear gas, freaking everybody out, but Batman gets affected in a unique way. Due to the fear of being alone being right on his mind with this wedding of an ex-girlfriend occurring, all of Batman's allies, including the original Batwoman and Batgirl and Robin, disappear before his eyes. Oh, they're still there, but he doesn't perceive them. So he seeks out the aid of his former villain, Catwoman, who's in prison, to help track down the Scarecrow. And the story progresses from there, with them trying to track Jonathan Crane and getting attacked by his fear-based traps, with the climax happening in a bell tower. As the same effect occurs, Batman starts to see Catwoman fade away and vice versa. Desperate, the two realize that if they remove their masks, they will remove the effect of the gas as well, and neither will disappear. Reluctantly, Batman removes his mask and kisses Catwoman. The story goes on to tell how they got married, their lives went on from there, and then ends with the revelation that Selina has passed away. I know what you're thinking, that's an odd story to have as a favorite story. But it left an indelible mark in my mind on Batman. It reflected so much in the character and his legacy completely changed the way I looked at him. Now, Batman's been rebooted most recently in 2011, if you want to call that a reboot. A restructuring's probably more appropriate. But here's what I thought about. If Batman were a real person, he would age. In Earth 2, Robin became older, became his own hero. Batman and Catwoman had a daughter, Helena, who grew up to be the Huntress. Things progressed forward, almost like a real life. I first read this at 14, months before Batman Returns would come out, still on the high that the 1989 Batman created. That wave had crested but had not wrote itself out. But this story made me recognize the legacy that Batman carries at that time for 50 years plus, now at 75 years. And the realization I had doesn't just apply to Batman, it applies to Daredevil, Hulk, Superman, whoever your fandom is. These characters existed before I was born, before many of us were born. There will be children born on the day this episode sees release, June 29th to 2014, that will grow up to read the exploits of Batman and Daredevil. These characters and the mythology that they weave are simply bigger than us. But what we carry on our backs as fans is something we can never really tangibly own. It doesn't matter if you have every single issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. Spider-Man's still bigger than that comic book long box or long boxes that would hold that. These characters are bigger than the DVDs on our shelves and the movies playing on our screens. 
Almost like living creatures, they thrive. They wither, they're reborn. And quite simply, we are just a speck in the grand scheme of things that these characters and their longevity will carry with them. And it made me very humble and very gracious to have a fandom in Batman. And as I've grown older and revisited it, I'm humble and gracious to be a part of Daredevil. And his longevity and his adventures just to share them. And doing this episode, bringing those fandoms together for one, what could be two-hour episode, means the world. We're simply stewards to these characters. They inhabit a fictional world far beyond our own, and they're going to outlive almost every one of us. Now, if we apply that thinking to where I started in this episode, with the two rules of fandom, one, don't tear somebody else's fandom down to build your own, and two, don't let somebody tear down your fandom to build their own. It suddenly puts that in a different perspective. Whether it's one fan or a group of fans, it's all cyclical. People will leave the fandom one way or the other. People will join the fandom. So my challenge to you, and the lesson I've learned by doing this episode, is foster fandom. Support somebody's fandom even if it's a character that's not so much up your alley. Likewise, if you believe in a character, share it, don't argue it. Point to some great stories. If it's Batman, look at The Killing Joke. Look at Court of Owls. Show somebody, too, the greatest Batman stories ever told. If it's Daredevil, why not Born Again? Why not loan out a copy of Essential Daredevil or share your Mark Wade run? Do I think saying this is going to change the landscape of fandom and stop all the fighting that seems to happen on the internets? No, I'm a realist. But hey, if one or two of you decide to try a different path, fantastic. I've already made my decision to foster fandom and to enjoy my fandom. Just because my podcast is about Daredevil and that's what I talk about week to week doesn't mean I don't love Batman or Superman or Blue Devil. Doesn't mean I can't like those either. It just means that I produce a show about Daredevil because I love that character and I want to talk about it in this medium. And that's a lot of thought to come from a simple story from 1983. So this has been kind of a healing project for me to do this episode, and I'm not going to indulge much further with this talk. Hopefully you take from it what you take from it, and hopefully overall you enjoyed the episode. Even if the books were less than stellar, it was still fun to read them and talk about these two extraordinary characters. It was fun to pay due to Batman's 75th anniversary, and Daredevil's 50th anniversary special is still in the pike for October. But as we draw to a close, just want to remind you this show is weekly, focusing on Daredevil. Next week, we'll be looking at Daredevil number 178, which features a guest appearance from Power Man and Iron Fist. Now, normally, I sign off with my signature line, Justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. But since this is a special episode, and since Batman is a guest superhero, I'm going to let him have the last word. So, this is really it. Yeah, looks like. At least you can say you had a good run. A great run. And until we meet again, boys and girls... Know that wherever evil lurks, in all its myriad forms, I'll be there with the hammers of justice to fight for decency and defend the innocent. Good night. This has been a special presentation of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which is a NatWorld production. Episodes and show notes can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. Episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. All music and sound clips are for entertainment purposes only. All rights remain with the copyright holders and no infringement is intended. 
No money is made from the production of this show, and it is for entertainment purposes only. Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode.